Good afternoon. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be back um, on a Sunday. And uh, this week, uh, we have a very, uh, I would like to call it a very dramatic, exciting parsha that, um, you know, it's a story. It's a story that happened to the Jewish people, and the Jewish people themselves didn't even know that it was happening. You know the expression, you slept straight through the hurricane? You know, someone is sleeping, he's sleeping so so well that the hurricane came and left, and the whole to-do, you know, the whole building flew away, and you're just sleeping. No problems. That's what basically happens in this week's parasha. In this week's parasha, there is not one communication. Um, well, there is. I'm, I'm talking about the first six sections of the parasha. There's no communication to Moses. There's no, you know, Jews complaining. There's nothing. Not none of that. What's going on? In the first six sections of the parasha, even in, into the seventh section as well, it's a story of two rabid anti-Semites, two lowlifes, Balak and Bilam. Balak is the king of Moab. Bilam is a non-Jewish prophet. And these two scum of the earth are scheming together to destroy the Jewish people. Um, typically, the way anti-Semites scheme to destroy the Jewish people is by figuring out what's the most efficient way to exterminate them. Haman had his way. Hitler had his way. They figured all these things. How are we going to destroy the Jewish people by brute force? Bullock, 3,000, uh, almost, almost 3,300 years ago, a little less, he came up with a different thing. He said, you know, fighting the Jewish people head on is a waste of time. In fact, last week we learned how the Jewish people wanted to go into the land of Israel, and when they were stopped by a mighty king named Sichon, they destroyed him. They were stopped by the giant Og, who was a king of a mighty nation as well. They destroyed him. So Balak realized, against these Jewish people, you can't fight them with military force, with brute force. It doesn't work. If Sichon and Og failed, Everyone's going to fail. So we have to find a different way of how to deal with them. So the Torah tells us, uh, this, this is actually uh, uh, explained explicitly in the Talmud, um, the Moabites wanted to figure out what's the secret of this nation. They, they figured there's got to be a conspiracy about this nation, why, why they are so successful. They could have just come to the conclusion that they're God's nation and God is protecting them and leading them, and therefore they are successful and no one can stand in their way. But they decided there's got to be something about them that we don't know about, but someone has to have a way of dealing with it. Who's their leader? Moshe. Now, Moshe lived in Midian for many, many years. Before he started his career as the leader of the Jewish people, when he was 80 years old, for many, many decades, he spent time in Midian. He married a woman that lived in Midian, actually. Sipora was the daughter of Yitro, or Jethro, who lived in Midian. So, they sent a message to the Midianites and they asked, what's the secret of the Jewish leader? So they said, you know what? His secret is in his mouth. He prays to God and that's the way he wins. So they said, all right, the way we're going to counter the Moses power is by finding someone who has similar powers, powers of their mouth. And here comes Bilam. Bilam was a prophet who lived far away. He really had nothing to do with this whole story. Uh, but his unique uh, service that he offered to kings and princes and, and generals alike was, if you give me the right amount of money, I'll come and I'll curse your enemy. And when they're cursed, they're, there's, nothing, there's nothing you can do. You know, they're, they're going to be completely destroyed. In fact, in last week's Parsha, uh, in, in some of the verses, that's exactly the meaning of it, that Bilam came and he cursed out a certain nation and they, they were destroyed and therefore Sichon won. A whole long story. So the point is, Balak is now hiring Bilam to come and use the power of his mouth, the power of his speech. He's able to curse the Jewish people, and that's the way they're going to get rid of them. Um, I'm not going to go into the details of the story, but to make a long story short, finally when Bilam makes it there, and Balak tries to get Bilam to curse the people, Bilam just can't do it. Uh, every time he wants to curse them, he ends up blessing them. Ultimately, being the first prophet, ironically, a non-Jewish prophet, but being the first prophet to go on record predicting that Mashiach will come, which is the greatest blessing for the Jewish people. What was the problem? What happened here? Um, and were the Jewish people really in danger? So there's the Haftorah for this week is, uh, is, a, is a, a chapter, it's chapter 5 in the book of Micah, Micha, and um, 
part of the of the communication there, God says, you know, please remember. He said, my people remember now what Balak, the king of Moab, planned. He planned to wipe you out. And what Bilam, the son of Baor, answered him. What was going on? Bilam didn't have the power to curse. His curse was worthless. Bilam's magic, his unique knowledge was, there is a certain moment of the day that God is angry. The Talmud says that there is one moment. There's rega ba'apoi. There's one. There's one. One. One moment of the day. I don't know if it's a split second or if it's a minute. I don't know the exact amount of time. But rega, that God is angry. And if you're able to calculate the exact moment that God is angry, if you're able to perceive and feel it and be sensitive to that, if you're able to be sensitive to God's anger and you utilize that moment to curse someone, something, that curse is going to uh, going to work. It's going to attach itself. So that's what Bilam was coming to do. Bilam, you know, he, he can curse all he wants, but it's like any other, any drunk cursing after their after a few beers. He was coming, waiting for that moment that God's going to be angry, and then he's going to curse them. And you know what happened during the entire time that Bilam was in the pay of Balak? God did not get angry. God changed his routine. And even though there's a specific time every single day where God is angry, during that entire time period, God did not get angry. So that basically Bilam says, what should I do? I can't curse them because God is not angry with them at the moment. I can't find that time that my curse is actually going to work. And God you know, puts that to the Jewish people as like a, like a calling card. He says, remember the great kindness I did for you. This was perhaps the only time that the Jewish people were truly in mortal danger. Pharaoh can make a decree to kill all the baby boys. But you know what? You can hide boys. You can hide them. You can, there's other ways of, of you know... And people come and fight. So fight back. But Bilam, when he came to curse the Jewish people, they had no way of knowing that he was there. They had no way of fighting back. And his curse works. This was the only time in their, you know, in the 40 years that they were a nation that they were truly in mortal danger. And God saved them by the fact that God changed his own routine. This is the perfect story of, of there's this hurricane going on. There's this terrible thing going on. And not only does it not destroy the people, not only does it not actually evolve into something catastrophic, but it actually becomes the opening through which the greatest blessings came to the Jewish people. In the Sikha that we're going to be learning today, uh, it's not going to be about the parasha of Balak. It's actually about uh, the fast day of the 17th of Tammuz, which actually occurs in a week from today, next Sunday. Um, and it's a very fascinating discussion about, you know, why do we fast then and uh, what exactly happened in the history. Um, and we'll see that the theme of, of that discussion goes hand in hand with this whole idea of Bilam and Balak and how where the Jewish people were truly in mortal danger, uh, it was completely turned around. So let's talk about the 17th of Tammuz. Uh, this is a fast day uh, which begins in the morning by daybreak and ends by... Uh, when the stars come out. Uh, in the summer, it's a pretty long one, but if you live in Australia or South America, it's actually a pretty short one. Uh, I actually had the good fortune of experiencing such a 17th of Tammuz. I was in Argentina one year, and it was a breeze. The problem is that the 10th of Tevez was pretty long, so, you know, you, you, you give and take. But um, why do we fast then? Source one from the Talmud in Tractate Tainus. Five things occurred to our ancestors on the 17th of Tammuz. The first thing was that the tablets were broken, right? Going back to the story of the, of the golden calf, Moses went on to, the, on to Mount Sinai after the giving of the Torah to receive the two tablets. After 40 days, the Jewish people made a miscalculation. They served the golden calf. When Moses came down from the mountain on the 17th of Tammuz, he saw the Jewish people were serving the golden calf, and he broke the two tablets. The, their lives were saved, but it was the first catastrophe. It was the first major tragedy, national Jewish tragedy. Uh, was on the 17th of Tammuz. Uh, the next thing, the Tammuz sacrifice was discontinued. Tammuz sacrifice, every single day in the Holy Temple, they would offer two sacrifices, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. Um, and uh, so long as the Temple stood, the Jewish people were very you know, careful to offer that sacrifice, even in the hardest times, when there was a famine in Jerusalem, there was no money for anything, they made sure that they were offering one sheep in the morning and one sheep in the afternoon because they knew 
that the, 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 the security of the city, the, the continuity of, of uh, the Jewish kingdom or whatever it was there really depended on this carbon tomid, on this consistent daily sacrifice. And on the 17th of Tammuz, uh, that I guess there was no more sheep or I guess the sheep that they had were not, were not worthy of being brought up as a sacrifice, be it as it may, uh, it stopped. It stopped then. So that was another national tragedy. The next thing, the city was breached. And perhaps they happened, you know, it could, they coincided on the day that they didn't bring <coughs> the Tamid, on the day that they didn't bring that, uh, that, uh, that sacrifice, the, the city itself was breached. Uh, the story goes, and again, the reason why I didn't say this initially is because I'm unsure of exactly the details, but this is the story that I remember that um, the Jewish people had a deal with the Babylonians that were encamped around the city. Every, every morning they would lower two buckets of gold and, they would, and, and the Babylonians would empty out the gold and they would in, put into those buckets two sheep. And that's how the Jews had the sheep every day to bring the carbon tamid, the, the, the sacrifice. On the 17th of Tammuz, they lowered the gold and the Babylonians, instead of putting in sheep, they put two pigs into these barrels. And when they started to pick up the barrels, they started to, you know, to, to lift the barrels to bring them in. When the, when, the, when the feet of the pigs touched the, the wall, the walls shook. Obviously, they, didn't have, uh, they did not have the, the sheep for the Tumid sacrifice. They didn't bring the sacrifice anymore. And because the walls shook, then the Babylonians were able to completely you know, tear down the walls. And uh, there was war and bloodshed going on in Jerusalem until the 9th of Av when the Holy Temple was destroyed. So that's kind of the correlation between the Tumid stopping and uh, the, the fact that the walls were breached, the city was breached. Uh, Apostumus burned the Torah. Apostumus was a Roman uh, emperor, and uh, he made a big to-do of, of burning the Torah. That also happened on the 17th of Tammuz. The Hamid Salam Behechol, and he set up an idol in the temple. So these are five national tragedies that occurred on the 17th of Tammuz, and because of that, we fast on the 17th of Tammuz. In fact, the 17th of Tammuz begins a three-week period of mourning, which culminates on the 9th of Av, which commemorates the destruction of the first and second holy temples. Um, so that starts, again, in a week from Sunday. But there are five things that happen on the 17th, and that's why it starts then. Jeremiah says the following. Obviously, we're talking here about the destruction of the First Holy Temple. In the ninth year of Tzitkiyah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar, so tenth month here is referring to the month of, um, uh, the tenth month is the month of Tevis. In biblical jargon, in, in the biblical expression, the first month is the month of Nisan, the month of Passover. That's called the first month. Even the Rosh Hashanah is in Tishrei, in the fall, but in, in Torah language, Nisan, the, the month of Passover, which is in the spring, is called the first. So whenever you see first month, third month, tenth month, you have to make the calculation from Nisan. Tenth month from Nisan is the month of Tevis, which is the dead of winter. So the ninth year of Tzitkiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came with his entire army to Jerusalem and encamped around it, setting up a siege around it. In fact, that's the reason why we have the fast of the 10th of Tevis, to commemorate the beginning of the Babylonian siege. The city remained under siege until King Tzitkiah's 11th year. So three years, they were under siege. It was on the ninth day of the fourth month. So the fourth month is the month of Tammuz. So the ninth day, the famine had become severe and the people had no food. The city was breached. Ninth. Remember, this is the date here that he's saying is the ninth day. The city was breached. All the soldiers fled the city at night through the gate between the two walls near the king's garden. The Chaldeans were surrounding the city. They fled by way of the Arava. On the 10th day of the fifth month, in the 19th year of the kingdom of Uchadnezzar of Babylon, Uzradon, the chief executioner, came before the Babylonian king of Jerusalem. He burnt the house of God and the king's palace, and he burnt all the houses of Jerusalem and all the houses of the dignitaries. The fifth month is the month of Ab. Here he says it was the 10th day, in fact, the burning of the Holy Temple began on the eve of the 10th. It was still the 9th. Uh, that was the beginning of the burning of the Temple, and therefore the fast of, uh, of the 9th of Av is specifically on the 9th. But the truth is that the, 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 the building, the Temple, and the city continued to burn well into the 10th. 
sorry. Okay, so here comes uh, here comes the big question. The Mishnah tells us the Mishnah tractate Taina says that the the city was breached on the seventeenth. Comes the Bible. Jeremiah says that it was breached on the 9th. So the Talmud asks that question. The city was breached on the 17th, but the verse says on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become severe, followed by the city was breached. Rabbi said this is not difficult. One refers to the first temple, the other to the second temple. As a rabbi is taught during the first temple era, the city was breached on the 9th of Tammuz and the second temple era on the 17th of Tammuz. Okay. So we had two temples that were destroyed. One of them, the main date was the 9th, and the other one was on the 17th. The question is, why was the fast established specifically on the 17th? Why not on the 9th? So here we have a quote on, in Source 4, a quote, a quote from the Shulchan Aruch, a quote of Jewish law, explains the following. We fast on 9th of Av, the 3rd of Tishrei, and the 10th of, I'm sorry, 9th of Av, 17th of Tavos, 3rd of Tishrei, and the 10th of Tavis, due to the tragedies that occurred on those dates. So the ninth of Av was the burning of the temple, the 17th of Tammuz was the breaching of the walls, the 3rd of Tishrei was the death of, of Gedalia, this is something else that happened after the destruction of the first holy temple, and the 10th of Tavis, as we mentioned, that was the day that Nebuchadnezzar started the siege around Jerusalem. Although the verse states that Jerusalem was breached on 9 Tammuz, we fast on the 17th, not on the 9th. Although the city was breached on 9 Tammuz during the first temple era, the fast was enacted to commemorate the breach of the Second Temple era because the destruction of the Second Temple is a greater tragedy from our perspective, right? After the First Temple was destroyed, we got a second one. If the second one would have never been destroyed, we would still have a temple. So to us, what is the greater tragedy? The destruction of the Second Temple. Now, the actual destruction of the Temple has happened on the same day. The First and Second were both destroyed on the 9th of Av. But the breaching of the walls that led to the destruction of the temple, at least what we know up until now, the first temple era had happened on the 9th. The second temple era had happened on the 17th. So the fast was enacted on the 17th because what happened during the, second, the, during the destruction of the second temple era is, what's, is the exile that we are suffering with now. Um, source 5, Magen Avraham, who is uh, one, of the, the most, one of the most important commentators um, on the Shulchan Aruch. I want to call him a commentator. He, he also added his halachic uh, glosses on the Shulchan Aruch, and he said the following. We do not fast on the 9th, in other words, the 9th of Tammuz. They did not want to enact the fast on the 9th because we do not overburden the public. Therefore, a devout person should fast on the 9th as well. Technically speaking, the 9th of Tammuz is a day that's worthy of being a fast day because during the first temple era, it was the day that the walls were breached. But if you have too many fast days in, in, in rapid succession, you know, people are going to be like, yeah, no, thank you. So, uh, so they, they, they decided, you know, let's put the ninth on the side. The 17th is a day that everyone needs to fast. However, someone who is extremely devout, uh, in halachic in terminology, it's called a bal nefesh, someone who's really in tune, with, in tune with, the, with the soul, someone who really wants to be extra devout, should fast on the ninth as well. Okay? Ready for the next thing? The Jerusalem Talmud gets into this discussion. The verse says that it was that the walls were breached on the 9th of Tammuz, but we commemorate till today the 17th of Tammuz. What's, what's going on here? Source number 6 from the Jerusalem Talmud. The verse says that the city was breached on the 9th, and you say on the 17th? Rabbi Tanchum Bar Lo'i said it is a miscalculation. The date that is recorded in Jeremiah is a mistake. At least that's what it seems to mean. <laughs> Just the reading, there's a miscalculation. Apparently, apparently uh, indicating that what is recorded in Jeremiah is simply not true. It was not the 9th of Tammuz, it was the 17th of Tammuz. That's a very big deal to make such a statement. The, the Babylonian Talmud, you see, what's the difference between these two Talmuds? Um, after the Mishnah was, was authored by Judah the Prince, 
And after he passed away, so they continued to study the Mishnah. This was the foundation of, of the oral law. Uh, there were two main academies. There was an academy in Israel, which is actually where Judah the prince lived. The main academy actually moved to Babylon. That's where the main academy was, and that's where really Torah scholarship was flourishing uh, for about four to 500 years. Uh, in, in Israel, in the land of Israel, which was already destroyed, I mean, the temple was not there, but there was still a sizable community there, um, Rabbi Yochanan put together what's called the Jerusalem Talmud, um, and that pretty much, you know, summed up uh, Torah scholarship uh, from, uh, from, the, from the Israeli Academy. It's called the Jerusalem Talmud. 100 years later, Rav Ashi, who was the leader of the Babylonian community, he composed a different Talmud, which is called the Babylonian Talmud, which sums up all of the Babylonian scholarship. However, because it was authored 100 years later, it also included a lot of the scholarship that was taught in the land of Israel. And until today, it is the most authoritative Talmud. Whenever you have a discrepancy between the Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud, you know, you, you give to the Babylonian Talmud. However, however, before we get into the Sikh, it's important to know that as much as possible, it's important to try to find a way how these two Talmuds do not contradict each other. If, if we're able to figure out a way how they don't contradict each other, that's the best way to go about that type of scholarship. All right, so I think, I think we're ready to get into the Sikha, page five. What's the difference whether, the, whether the, the wall was breached on the ninth of Tammuz during the first temple era or not? According to the Babylonian Talmud, they say that the first temple era, that's when it happened, the ninth of Tammuz. According to the Jerusalem Talmud, he says no. It didn't happen like that in the ninth of Tammuz. Even in the first temple era, it happened on the 17th of Tammuz. What's the difference? Who cares? Who cares when exactly it happened? So the Rebbe says, the Father Rebbe begins like this on page five. The argument between the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds has a real life consequence. What is it? Should a devout person fast on nine Tammuz as well? Right? Remember before, and we said, look, the Allah is that the main fast is, you know, for the 17th because that's most relevant to us. However, someone who's devout should do it on the 9th, because really we should be fasting on the 9th. Well, according to the Jerusalem Talmud, there's no reason to fast on the 9th, right? The Babylonian Talmud says that Jerusalem was breached on 9 Talmuds in the first temple era. Thus, the devout should fast on that day as well, as stated in Bagan Avraham. But the Jerusalem Talmud says that it was a miscalculation. Thus, no tragedy occurred on 9 Talmuds, and the devout person has no reason to fast. On the contrary, it should be a joyful day. Why? <laughs> because we are obligated to always serve God with joy. Someone wakes up on the night, 10th of Tammuz. Today is the 10th of Tammuz. Says, oh, we're going to make it a fast. Uh, we're going to make it a sad day. Why? What, what in the world? You only have to be sad when, when halacha tells you to be sad. You only uh, abstain from meat and abstain from wine when halacha tells you abstain from it. Don't make a wedding. Don't listen to music. But otherwise, why shouldn't the 9th of Tammuz be a joyful day? A devout person is in the fast on the ninth of Tammuz, what, because of, because of a pipe dream? Because of some, a miscalculation? What in the world? So that's the real-life relevance to figure out what exactly happened on the ninth of Tammuz. Or did anything happen on the ninth of Tammuz? Now, there is a well-known rule that Torah does not argue over facts. You see, when you look at Torah scholarship, you'll find a lot of arguments, a lot of disagreements. But they'll never argue about a certain fact. Either it happened or it didn't happen. Either it happened on that date or it didn't happen that day. They'll argue over law. They'll argue over interpretation. But about a fact, why should you argue? But in our case, the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds do seem to argue over facts. The Babylonian Talmud says that the city was breached on the 9th, and the Jerusalem Talmud says it was breached on the 17th. Does this not contradict the rule that they cannot argue about facts? All right, so this is the question. When did it happen? And we really need to get to the bottom of this because should the ninth of Tammuz be something that a devout Jew would fast on or not? Before we get into the answer to this question, there's a few, there, there are two things um, that are really part of the same concept that we need to uh, preface. And that is, if you go back to the story of the flood, the first world tragedy that occurred was the, the story of the flood. Um, there, was, there was hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions of people on earth, and this 
terrible flood came, wiped everyone out, and only one family survived. One family of parents, three sons, and three daughters-in-law. That's it. And a representation of every animal uh, species. It's a terrible tragedy. And it's known as the Mabel, the flood. But interestingly enough, the Torah, when it records the story of the flood, when it starts, when it, when it tells us about the beginning of the flood, it does not call it a flood. It calls it a rainfall. Right? The source 7a, the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. Now, rain is a beautiful thing. Rain is life. Rain brings life. Everyone loves rain, obviously in measure. But what type of rain are we talking about? We're talking here a rain that destroyed the world. How can you call it a rain? Call it a hurricane. Call it a huna. I mean, you know, when a hurricane hits, you don't say, oh, it started to drizzle and a beautiful rainfall came. But then, oh, it turned into a hurricane. No, we know we have a hurricane warning and get out of here. Run, run, run. But here the Torah doesn't even, there's no bells and whistles. The rain fell. Then it says there was a flood on the earth for 40 days. The waters increased, lifting the ark, and it rose from on the ground. So was it a rainfall or was it a, a, terrible, uh, a terrible flood? So Rashi explains. The rain fell on the earth, but later it's called a flood. Rather, God first brought down a gentle rain so that if they would repent, it would become a benign rainfall. When they didn't repent, it turned into a flood. So for 120 years, God is warning the people through Noah that a, a, a flood is going to come and wipe them out because they're terrible. And yet, when, when the day comes that the flood has to begin, you think, okay, this is it. But we're not giving them any more chances. They got 120 years of warning, plenty of warning. In fact, they got a seven-day extension because Mr. Shelach, who was Noah's grandfather, just died. So for the seven days of Shiva, God held off. Now it's D-Day. It's H-Hour. We're going to destroy them. And yet, what does God do? He says, let's start off with the rain. Let them see, oh, it, you know, God means business. The fact that Noah warned them, the fact that Noah built a, an ark, etc. Fine. The rain is actually coming. Perhaps they'll do Teshuvah. And if they'll do Teshuvah, fine. So it'll be a rain. They didn't do Teshuvah, so then it became a hurricane. Then it became a terrible flood. Uh, there's another concept that's, that's actually very similar to this idea, how something can be decided, but then it could be changed as things evolve. Let's talk about the, you know, everything that we have, you know, everything that we have in life, our health, uh, sustenance, whatever it may be, it's decided on Rosh Hashanah. That's why on Rosh Hashanah, it's a, it's a day of judgment. God is judging and deciding what we will have throughout the year. Source number eight, a quote from the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, the world is judged four times a year. On Rosh Hashanah, all creatures pass before him like sheep, as it is stated. He who fashions their hearts alike, who considers all their deeds. Rosh Hashanah is the day when God decides everything that's going to happen to us. Rabbi Yossi said, a person is judged every day. As it is stated, you visit him every morning. When's the judgment? Is it on Rosh Hashanah? Or is it every day? So let's go to source nine. This is a quote from Kuntra Samayim. This is a beautiful Hasidic. Uh, text that was authored by the fifth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rashab. And he says the following, according to Rabbi Yossi, a person is judged every day. If so, the question was raised, what difference is there between Rosh Hashanah and every day of the year? We must conclude that there is no disagreement that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are days of judgment when every creature's sustenance is determined. Even according to Rabbi Yossi, Rosh Hashanah is the day to be in Shul. On Rosh Hashanah, sustenance is allotted for the world in general. And at Ne'ilah of Yom Kippur, there is the seeding and specific determination of each person individually. All agree on this. Nonetheless, Rabbi Yossi maintains that we are judged daily with a full-fledged judgment for all our affairs, for illness, for health, for life, and so on. Because on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, the judgment has not been finalized clearly yet. Here's the deal. What form shall the sustenance assume? Whether for children, health, prosperity, or for all three, or in spiritual terms, or in the world to come, this is a daily judgment. So here's the deal. You know, when you, a bank account, you can have a million dollars in the bank account, right? What type of money do people want to have in the bank account? Money without any strings attached. I can do whatever I want with the money. I can buy food, I can pay rent, I can take a vacation, whatever I want. That's up to me. But then there are some uh, lucky people what type of bank account do they have? You know, they have an inheritance from some great uncle, 
that just died, right? They have a million dollars. The problem is that the million dollars is allocated. These million dollars, you know, $200,000 can only be spent on this, and 300000 can only be spent on this, and a half a million can only be spent if this person is going to do X, Y, and Z. There's a whole bunch of, oh, so many strings attached, it's not even worth it to do, right? It's a, whatever. What happens on Rosh Hashanah is God gives, you know, everyone, every one of us has like this account with God, and God fills it up with chesed, with kindness. So God gives everyone a certain amount of kindness. It's like brownie points, I guess. And the thing is that every day, you know, you have to eat every day, you have to pay rent, whatever it is. So now this kindness can come to us every day in many different formats. It can come to us in health, in children, money, uh, peace of mind, or it can come to us as, you know what, we're going to put it aside so that in the next, in the next world, you'll have more spiritual energy. God can do whatever he wants with those brownie points. That's why it's so important every day for us to wake up in the morning and to pray to God and say, God, please give me health. and Please give me sustenance. Please give me food. Please give me this, this. God, don't play games with me. Don't, don't start the reallocating the chesed that you gave me and put it in other things or just keep it spiritual chesed, spiritual kindness. I need to, have the, I need to pay the rent. I need to have food on the table. So as he continues, both then are true. The primary judgment to determine the beneficent the, the beneficence is made on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. However, a full-fledged judgment takes place every day. So here you have another scenario of where something is decided, but things can change. Things can change as we move along. Similarly to what happened with the flood. There was a little rain that came down. It started. If they would do Teshuvah, so, okay, no flood. God has no problem. He, he has where to back up the waters. He has no issue. Uh, they didn't do Teshuvah. Okay, comes the hurricane Noah. Here comes the flood. The same thing here. God made these grand decisions on Yom Kippur. But then throughout the year, every day, things can change. Things can evolve in many different ways. So let's see how the Rebbe connects that. It's actually a, a brilliant a brilliant concept. The Rebbe basically rereads the entire Jerusalem Talmud. But let, let's get to it. Uh, page 8. The explanation. The young Torah student has already learned that the flood was first called a rainfall and only later a flood. The, the Torah student that's reading the, that's reading the Talmud definitely already has a background in uh, Chumash. He already learned Chumash when he was a kid. So he already learned that, uh, that the flood was first called a rainfall and only later a flood. Rashi explained that God first sent down a gentle rainfall with the hope that they would repent. It turned into a flood only when they did not. Clearly, it was not clear at the outset how the flood would pan out. There was a possibility that the undesirable event would be transformed to good into a benign rainfall. Similarly, as we discussed in our last gathering, our sages say that God holds the keys to rainfall and to sustenance in apparent redundance. We explain that even when there is rainfall, it is not an automatic confirmation that it will bring sustenance. Likewise, our sages said a person is judged every day for his sustenance, despite the fact that God already designated our future on Rosh Hashanah. The Rebbe just brought basically three examples how something you know, starts off, the future, it's up to you to decide. You know, it depends on your teshuva, depends on your prayer, depends on a lot of things. Uh, the thing that he was mentioning beforehand says that God has three keys, rainfall and sustenance. Isn't that the same? And the answer is God could bring rain, but that rain could either be positive or it could be negative. It could be enough rain, it could be less rain. You know, so the rain doesn't automatically translate into sustenance. Be it as it may, the point the Rebbe is bringing is that even when something starts, even when something is already underway, when the train is leaving the station, its destination is not concrete. It's not final. Things can still change. The same is true in our case. When the city was breached on the 9th of Talmud, so now here, here the Rebbe is taking on that, the Babylonian Talmud says that during the first temple era, the city was breached on the, on the 9th of Talmud. So we're going to take that on as fact. But what's with the Jerusalem Talmud? So here's how the Rebbe explains it. When the city was breached on the 9th of Talmud, the possibility remained that the episode could turn out to be a positive one. How could a breach of the, of the city be positive? 
If the situation would have brought them to repent, the breach in the city walls would have been transformed into something positive. But since they did not repent, the walls breach turned out to be on the 17th of Tammuz, an irreversibly negative development. How so? So here, let's talk a little bit about military tactics, uh, how, to, how to wage war. In last week's parasha, we learn about the Jewish people come to the, pretty much on the borders of the land of Israel. They want to pass through the land of the Amorites to get to the land of Israel. And Sichon says, no, not at all. Um, source 10a, let's just go this very, very quickly. Israel sent emissaries to Sichon. Okay, uh, the third paragraph. Sichon did not allow, did not let Israel pass through his territories. Instead, he gathered all his people and went out to confront Israel in the desert. When he came to Yahatz, he attacked Israel. Israel struck him by the sword and occupied his land from the Arnon to the Yabok. As far as the Ammonite borders, the Ammonite borders, however, remained firm. So Rashi makes an interesting observation. Source 10b. Even if Cheshbon, which was the country, the, the, the land of Sichon, would, have, would only have mosquitoes, it would be too formidable to conquer. Even if Sichon would live in a weak village, he would be too formidable to conquer. How much more so when Sichon lived in Cheshbon? But God said, why should I give my children the hassle of a siege? He gave the soldiers the idea to exit the cities, and they were killed in battle. The Israelites then proceeded to the cities without opposition, since only women and children were left. So all the soldiers of Sichon, they came out of the cities, they went to wage war against the Jewish people, they killed them out in the battlefield, and now the cities are empty, there are no warriors there, there was no one protecting the cities. Another interesting story that happened uh, a generation later when Joshua led the Jewish people, well, it's actually the same generation. After Meshach Rabbeinu's death, Yeshua led the Jewish people into the land of Israel, and they were attacking the city of Ai. So here's what they did, source 11. Joshua and all the soldiers arose to go up against Ai. Joshua chose 30,000 mighty soldiers and sent them away at night. He commanded them as follows, lie in, the lie in ambush behind the city, don't go too far away from the city and be at the ready. I and the people with me will approach the city. When they come out to attack us, as they did last time, we will flee before them. They will follow us until they are detached from the city. They will say they are fleeing like last time. We will flee from them. Then these 30,000 soldiers that were sent out the night before rise up from the ambush and conquer the city. And God will deliver it into your hands. What we see from here is that when you have a, a city that, you know, that, that has a fortress, it's fortified by a wall, there are different ways of how to approach dealing with the enemy. So if you're outside the wall and you want to lure the enemy out of the wall, they did this by Sichoin. They were all, all the soldiers were lured outside of the city and the Jewish people destroyed them in the battlefield. They did this with the city of Ai as well. And here there was going to explain how there is an interesting tactic when an enemy that is surrounding the city breaches the walls, it depends what type of breach it is. Let's see how the Rebbe explains it. Page 11. The explanation. It is very difficult to triumph over an enemy in a fortified city with walls and so on. So when the Israelites battled Sichon, we find that Sichon gathered his entire nation and exited the city to battle with the Israelites. Rashi explains that God said, why should I give my children the hassle of a siege? He gave the soldiers the idea to go out. Clearly, I'm going to the end of the paragraph here, clearly it is easier to fight the enemy outside the city fortifications. We find a similar case with Yoshua. When he needed to conquer the city of Ai, he set up an ambush behind the city. Israelite soldiers first pretended to flee, and then the Ai soldiers left the fortified city to pursue them. Other Israelite soldiers emerged from hiding, surrounding them from both sides. The same is true here. There was the possibility that the breach of Jerusalem's walls would be transformed into a positive development like a benign rainfall. How so? When the verse says, I'm continuing on page 12, when the verse says that the city was breached, in other words, the verse in Jeremiah tells us that the city was breached on the 9th of Thomas. It means that a small opening was created in the fortifications, not that the entire wall was destroyed. With just a small opening, the enemy soldiers could not all enter at once. They needed to file in one after another. This gave the Jews the opportunity to overpower the enemy, just like the method of ambush mentioned earlier. There are different ways of how to wage war, and you can take, you, you, you take advantage of certain situations. 
Here the situation is that there's this small, narrow breach in the walls. True, Babylonian soldiers can file in one after the other, but this is a great time. You can pick them off one after another. They're very vulnerable at this, at this stage. When the enemy troops begin entering the city, there are still a minority, vulnerable to the attack of the city defenders. Thus, the Jews could have repented on 9th of Tammuz when witnessing the walls being breached. From a spiritual perspective, it would have been understood that when the Jews didn't heed the warnings of the prophets to repent, God sent Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar, his general, to breach the walls of Jerusalem to move the people to repentance. I mean, these people were getting warnings day in and day out for years already, and it didn't help. But now when you actually see the walls being breached by the Babylonians, that should really bring things home. Similarly, to the people in the times of Noah, they were getting warnings for 120 years. And still God brought them a rainfall. Oh, you know, let, let's drive this idea home. When the Jewish people saw that small breach, they could have taken that as, oh, God really means business. Till now, it was just prophets coming and telling us that something terrible is going to happen. But now we actually see the breach in the wall. It's time to do Teshuvah. In that scenario, if they would have done Teshuvah as a result of the breach, the breach of the walls on the nine Tammuz would have been transformed into a positive development, like the flood turning into a benign rainfall. And the Jews would have, been, would have more easily overpowered the enemy, which was indeed feasible according to the laws of nature and definitely feasible with God's intervention. However, this allows us to connect the interpretations of the Babylonian and Jerusalem Talmuds. By all accounts, the city was breached on 9th of Talmud. When the Jerusalem Talmud says they miscalculated, it's not talking about Jeremiah. It's not talking about those that wrote Jeremiah, that it was, that it was broken on the 9th. Yes, it was on the 9th of Talmud. What it means is that the Jews misinterpreted the breach in the walls. When they saw the breach in the walls, they thought it meant an irreversible decree of God. They didn't realize that they, that they could convert it through repentance. So who was miscalculating? Not Jeremiah, not the Bible. The date is a true date. It was the 9th of Tammuz, and the Jerusalem Talmud is not countering that date. The Jerusalem Talmud is saying, you're right, it happened on the 9th of Tammuz, but on the 9th of Tammuz it was just a small breach. And the Jews miscalculated that breach. They thought that that's a message from God. Game's over. I sent you all of the prophets. You didn't listen. That's it. We're breaking down the walls. What they really should have come to the conclusion is, oh, that breach is there. God means business. We could still do teshuva. And somehow this breach is going to be the opening through which we are going to be victorious over the Babylonians. In truth, the city was breached on nine Tammuz in order to inspire the people to return to God. Through repentance, the entire incident could have been turned into good. But by the 17th of Tammuz, the city was breached irreversibly. This time, God's decree was final. All the walls were gone, and like, you know, that, that, that was it. It was over. So th this, this teaches us a few things. First of all, I believe that the, that the very powerful lesson that emerges from this discussion is that it's never too, it really is never too late. Even when someone thinks, I messed up terribly, to the point that I could see God's retribution. I could see the, the, the results of my bad choices. I could see the consequences of, my, of, of, of all my misdeeds. Even then, it's never too late. Even then, one can do Teshuvah. And all of the things that you are interpreting as retribution, as consequence, etc., could all be transformed into something very positive. And in fact, what we learn from this week's parasha is that the very existence of our people is predicated on this fact. We, we, our, 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 our survival throughout history is constantly going from one crisis to another, even if we're unaware of it. There's always a time where people are trying to destroy us, and sometimes specifically through those that try to destroy us, the greatest good comes to our people. So if Bila, who was the greatest anti-Semite to live, who had the ability to truly, you know, endanger the Jewish people, mortal danger, and yet he became the, 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 the conduit through which the concept of Mashiach was revealed to the world, 
The same could obviously be true and is certainly true with regard to any negativity that we may find in our lives, even if that negativity was brought upon us by ourselves, even if we made those bad choices, it's never too late. It's never irreversible. And we are always able to, through proper repentance and through making the right choices from here on, we're able to reverse and, and manipulate even a terrible situation like the breach in a wall, that itself could become the catalyst for something that is actually very positive. Unfortunately, in the times of the First Holy Temple, the Jewish people miscalculated. They misunderstood the message of the breach in the wall. Instead of taking it as a clear sign that God means business and therefore they should do teshuva, and as a result, this breach is going to be the, the, the opening to their victory, they miscalculated and they thought it was irreversible. But now we have the benefit of history, we have the benefit of these teachings from the Rebbe, and we're able to incorporate this message into our own lives and to have the, the how do you say, to have the guts to stare negativity in the eye and say, you can actually be good one day. If I'm just going to make the right choices, if I'm going to make uh, the right decisions from here on. And the biggest hope is that by the time we reach this coming Sunday, which is the 17th of Tammuz, the Sheikh should be here already. And instead of being a fast day and a day of sadness, commemorating the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, we should be, we should be, as you say, tifin mitin. We should be deeply immersed in the in the in the joy, and the big party that the coming of Mashiach will definitely unleash. Maybe today. Amen. Amen. So how do we do teshuva? How do we do teshuva? Very simple. Very simple. If we, we, the next time you have a cup of water in your hands. You say the blessing, If you find a doorway in your house that doesn't have a mezuzah, make sure to purchase a kosher mezuzah. You wake up in the morning, make sure to put on tefillin. You have a charity box in your home, make sure to put charity there every day. Friday evening at the right time, light Shabbos candles. It's very easy to do teshuva. It's not, it's, not, it's not too hard. Thank you. So, Rabbi, so Rabbi according to your opinion, uh, all this wave of anti-Semitism throughout the world is a harbinger of good things to come to the Jewish people? What I will say is like this. Anti-Semitism is bad and concerning, but it shouldn't be crushing. It shouldn't be crushing because anti-Semitism doesn't mean, doesn't, doesn't spell the end or the doom of the Jewish people. We've had anti-Semitism for 3,333 years and even more than that, even before that. And we're still here. So, so in other words, anti-Semitism is upsetting, is disturbing, certainly not surprising. Um, and the way to deal with it is to be prouder and stronger Jews. Yeah, but the Jews don't learn the lesson. We're not we united. Do. We are not presenting a united front like we should. I, in my opinion. If you're asking my opinion, when we talk about presenting a united front, it means that all Jews should get together and learn Torah and do more mitzvahs, because responding to anti-Semitism, um, even though it's important, there has to be a type of response, but that's not what's going to save us from anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism has outlived all of its condemnations, but Jews have outlived anti-Semitism. So uh, that's, that, that's something that we have to bear in mind. Um, we are not going to rid the world of anti-Semitism. The only one who is going to rid it of anti-Semitism is Mashiach, essentially. That's, you know, just like we're not going to build the Holy Temple, we're not going to get rid of anti-Semitism. Mashiach will do that. So our job is to bring Mashiach. Mashiach yes. will build the temple, and he will get rid of anti-Semitism and all of these tzadahs. Uh, what, what it is a sign of, that's beyond my pay grade. For that, you're going to have to give a different type of check. To, for me to say what, uh, what it's a sign of. No, I'm, I'm serious. What, what I'm saying is, no one can tell you what this specific form of anti-Semitism, this wave of anti-Semitism, what it is a sign of. What, what, what do you know? What do I know? What does this guy, what do you guys know? You're a prophet or something. Anti-Semitism is bad. And I hope that the guy next door and I hope that the guy going down the street is not an anti-Semite. If he is, he keeps quiet and that's it, right? That, that's what I hope. What we have to invest our energies in is to ensure that the anti-Semitism and all of that does not break our spirit, does not break our Jewishness and does not force us to hide our Jewishness. On the contrary, in the face of anti-Semitism, we have to be more Jewish. 
We have to be more proud of our Judaism. And we have to tell the anti-Semites all of your hatred and all of your bigotry. It's not going to do anything to us. Uh, I'll tell you a story I just heard from someone. I heard it from him directly. He was, uh, he lived in Russia for many years. He was walking uh, in, in, in Moscow, one of these main squares, together with a, a diplomat. And at a certain part of the square, there was like this, this group of, uh, for lack of a better term, like basically Nazis. I mean, you could tell that they were like these Nazi people. So the diplomat, who was actually Jewish, suggested to this to this rabbi who was walking with a yarmulke, he says, maybe you should hide your yarmulke. So for a split second, the rabbi thought to himself, you know, for me, I would never take away the yarmulke, but perhaps I'm endangering this guy who's walking next to me with the yarmulke. But then he saw that on a different corner of the square, there was a group of, of, of black workers, you know, workers from Africa that were there. So he said, when they change the color of their skin, I'll take off my yarmulke. And the diplomat said, uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> he apologized. In other words, you have to realize that, that uh, you know, anti-Semitism, bigotry, you know, a, a black person, when he's faced with, with racism, he doesn't have an option. He, he, can't, cha- he can't change his skin color. There's nothing, there's nothing that, 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 that this person can, that yeah. they can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and by the way, you can try to convince people out of racism. A racist is a racist. Yeah, some people get changed. Fine. And that's great. And that's great. And, and racism should be condemned and there should be awareness. All these things are true. But if you'll ask a black, a colored person, they'll tell you with all that's been going on, etc. there's still racism, right? And what, what are they supposed to do about it? They live life. That's it. Same thing as with a Jew. Our Judaism is our skin color. Our Judaism is something that we can't change. You're not going to change the anti-Semite and the anti-Semite knows that, he's, uh, that you're not going to be changed and that's it. And, uh, you know, you have to make sure that it does that uh, that it doesn't hurt, as we say. But certainly, the response cannot be uh, cannot be anything other than um, only strengthening our our Jewish pride, awareness, and identity. I agree. Excellent. I agree. Baruch Hashem. Thank you so much. All righty. Very good. Any other questions, comments? <clears throat> All right.